Good morning, and welcome to episode 387 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Baseball Reference Play Index. We have a sponsor, Sam. That's exciting. I mean, it's a, it is exciting. It's, it's it's somewhat exciting that we have a sponsor, but it is it is very exciting that we have a sponsor that uh, we love so much. That exactly. We, yes. Like that. Like that. We are associated with them in any way is exciting. Yes, for a long time I have thought that maybe we should just start reading. I also have thought that. Yeah, we should I, just start I, writing I, our own <laughs> promos for like Audible or Stamps.com and just yeah. reading them without actually being sponsored. Because when people listen to podcasts that are good, they expect to hear those things. Uh, and we have never had those things. So I thought it would maybe add a, an air of legitimacy to what we do. I was um, not. I did not want to do it for Audible and and go to meetings. I was. I I wanted to do that idea, except with just things that we like and yes. just li- like just lie and, <laughs> and imply that they're paying us. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that we don't have to make up promos, uh, as this is a, an actual arrangement that we have. And uh, for those of you expecting a White Sox preview with Ken Funk and Dan Hayes, don't worry. We didn't lure you here under false pretenses, and we are about to deliver one. But because this is the first time that we are introducing our sponsor, we do feel that we have to say a few words about what it is. I, I guess the, the best pitch that I could give for the Play Index, and, and we'll be mentioning it, it often, and, and on Friday we'll do little walkthroughs of, of what you can do with it and come up with some interesting stats. But I think the, the best endorsement of it really is that uh, you and I are lucky in that we have access to the baseball prospectus database. And when we want to look up some complicated stats question, we could email someone who is better at, you know, select statements and queries and froms and ats and ifs and concatenates. uh, And we can get all this information that we wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And yet, even so, both you and I have been paying customers for the play index throughout our time at BP. Uh, so even though we have access to, to other stats that a lot of people don't, we still find it valuable enough to pay for. Uh, so if you don't have the, the access that we do at Baseball Prospectus, then it becomes even more valuable. Yes. And uh, not only have it, but use it constantly. Use it all the time. Used it today. Used it yesterday. We'll use it tomorrow. Use it for fun. Use it for research. Use it for, I, I use it almost every day during this show, I would say. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I do too, very often. Um, and if you if you go to uh, baseballreference.com, you will see a post uh, right there on the front page that says subscribe to the Play Index that will give you details about the Play Index. Uh, you will register for a free account, and then you will have the option to subscribe to the Play Index. Uh, do you, when you go to Baseball Reference, are you a hyphen typer or a non-hyphen typer? I actually, uh, I have to admit that it is easier just to type the name, since Baseball Reference is the first result in almost any Google search, uh-huh. uh, I, I usually just Google the name. Even when I'm on Baseball Reference, <laughs> like even when I'm actually on the page itself, I just type the name into my Google search bar. <laughs> and then click on the baseball reference result at the top. So most of my Google searches are like uh, like 1993 Marlins schedule reference. And <laughs> so it's, it's always stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I am uh, I'm neither. 
is the uh-huh. answer. I see. Well, I'm, I'm, I type baseball-reference.com, even though I could leave the, the hyphen out and it would still redirect to the site. So that is the probably given the number of times that I go to the site every day, that is probably the, the biggest source of wasted time in my life. Um, can I can yeah. I just say one one quick thing because it will never be appropriate to say it again. But sure. one of the nice things about Baseball Reference Play Index as well is that once you are logged in, it never kicks you off. You yes. never ha- it's <laughs> so good about keeping you logged in. There's so many sites that kick you off every three weeks or two months or whatever. I logged in once and five years later still in there. In fact, it's it's, it's so good at keeping you logged in that I was trying to go through the process of subscribing so I could describe what people would need to do. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it because it, <laughs> it, it had me signed in and it wouldn't sign me out. So that's how, that's how good it is at remembering you. Uh, so the nice thing about the play index is that, uh, if you listen to this podcast and you use our coupon code, which is BP, it is cheaper. Uh, so the play index normally costs $36 for one year. If you use the coupon code BP, it costs $30 a year. So nice little discount for right. a product so, that is worth the full price. All right. So what's the plan for this? Uh, what are we? What are we? What are we doing here? Are we going to chat about? Should people expect six minutes of BREF banter every day? Or? <laughs> no, not that. Not that we couldn't do it. Uh, but no, we will. We will introduce the show with with our message uh, that we are brought to you by Baseball Reference. And then at the end of the show, we'll give the coupon code and that'll be that on the usual shows. On the Friday email shows, we will have a a little uh, sponsored segment where we will look up some interesting stats thing on the Play Index, which is something that uh, Joe and Randy used to do on their podcast if we have listeners of that show. And when I was a listener of that show, I always enjoyed that segment. So I will enjoy being part of it. Uh, and and that will be that. Great. So uh, okay, so we're gonna start uh, or resume our our team preview podcast with the White Sox today. Before we do, I had uh, one thing I wanted to say, which is that Mark Mulder is not going to pitch this year, um, which is sad uh, because uh, he has the ruptured Achilles. He is not going to pitch. Also sad because we're never going to know for sure how wrong you were about your projection for Mark Mulder. Mm, yeah. Did did I pick him in any drafts as well, or was it just the, the, uh, predi- the I think it. I think it was just the one where we picked someone who would do something that someone did last year. He was he was your pick for 2014 version of Scott Kazmir, and then I think we each gave our, our projection for him. That's right. Yeah. So he, he was the 2014 version of 2012 Scott Kazmir, though. Uh, 2012, yes, he was. That's right. Um, okay. He's not giving up. He's not giving up, by the way. He's, no, he he's, may pitch again. He may. <laughs> you want to give a prediction for his 2015 <laughs> stat line? Not yet. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so White Sox. Uh, we are first going to be talking to Ken Funk, uh, who we talked to about the Cubs recently. He also wrote the White Sox chapter for the annual. And then Nick Wheatley-Scheller will be talking to Dan Hayes, who is the White Sox insider for CSNChicago.com. Uh, so we will now bring on Ken. So Ken, thank you for coming back to discuss the team from the other side of Chicago. Yep, great to be here. Uh, so reading your essay in the annual, my main takeaway was that if the White Sox had spent any money in the draft during the Kenny Williams years and had drafted anyone useful during the Kenny Williams years, they could have been really, really good. 
and and I'm talking about a team that did win the World Series, uh, so they were pretty good. Yeah, yeah, there there definitely was a fallow period when when you talk to their development staff and and to folks in the organization, they chafe a little bit at that characterization. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Doug Lauman will say that he wasn't any under any sort of financial constraints uh, in, in the drafts that he was in charge of. That they they could spend what they wanted. They just didn't see places to spend money, but. Yeah, definitely there was a period where they really didn't get much production at all out of the draft. They're they're quick to point out that over the last three or four drafts, they've been far more successful getting guys like Chris Sale and Hector Santiago and uh, Daniel Hudson and and players that and Gordon Beckham, um, guys that they've been able to get to the uh, big leagues pretty quickly. But yeah, they, there was definitely a bill to be paid for those fallow drafts in, in the mid-aughties where they got very, very little, especially um, players to, to fill out the lineup. Um, so that yeah, that was that was a big, big problem for them, and, and the bill came due last year. And it still is due to some extent, I suppose. Yeah, when when you look at uh, you know our review of their system, um, uh, Jason and his crew, they they see that there's a lot more depth to the system, mm-hmm. but it's it's still really pretty devoid of uh, high impact talent, especially guys that are ready to step into uh, uh, into a big league job. The guys that are pretty well uh, um, considered are people that were drafted recently. You know, Tim Anderson and uh, Tyler Danish in, in the draft last year. Um, Courtney Hawkins was their top draft pick the year before, and he had one of those etch-a-sketch etch seasons where you just want to shake the board afterwards. He was he was so bad in, in single A, but he's still very young. Um, the one guy that can come up in the system and, and be and provide some value um, is Eric Johnson, who they're is probably going to slot in at the at the number four spot in the rotation this year and probably give them about what they would have expected to get out of John Danks if John Danks um, had had been is was healthy last year so so um, so the mystery of of you know how teenagers become major league baseball players is, has always been sort of confounding it's hard to know whether it's um, you know bad drafting or bad development or bad luck or bad major league kind of integration of those players. So, uh, so it's always hard to know exactly where to pinpoint the blame, et cetera. Just curious, though, do the White Sox have kind of a, um, you know, like a way that you can sum up their player development or their player acquisition? Is like if you had to convince me, um, you know, in an elevator ride that the White Sox were were doing something differently than other teams, and that's why things didn't work out, would you have an elevator story or? Is it just they didn't execute and they didn't get players out of it? I, I think I could I could manufacture an elevator story. Um, whether I would swear by it being the truth, I'm, I'm not quite so sure. Um, when you look at the drafts that, that had a lot of players that didn't pan out, one of the things that they seemed to focus on were was athleticism over present baseball skills. There were a lot of guys like um, Keenan Walker and, and Jared Mitchell who, you know, had just uh, drool-worthy athleticism. Um, but it was going to take a lot of work to to develop that talent um, into production between the lines. And for those guys, at least so far, it just hasn't worked out. Um, so y- you could you could try to build a case that, you know, they were just looking at how good these guys looked in their uniforms and, and just dreaming on their potential and haven't really been successful at turning them into, um, you know, top flight major leaguers. Um, but then again, I mean, you can make that case. 
developing and drafting players is a really, really difficult thing. And, you know, we can look at what the Cardinals have done and just be in awe of, of what they've done as far as developing players. But even the Cardinals at some point are probably going to go through a run of bad drafts where, where players just don't turn out the way that you expect them to, no matter how, you know, there's just so many variables that go into that. I, I don't, you know, really want to just say that the White Sox didn't know what they were doing for five or six years. And now suddenly they do because at the same time they were developing pitching. You know, there have been guys that came kind of out of nowhere. Hector Santiago um, came into the system and they were able to uh, swap him out for, uh, you know, players that they need. And that's, uh, you, you can only be so down on the White Sox development system. So I got a, a sneak peek at Jason Parks's organizational rankings today, which should be out at BP next week uh, and totally preliminary, not set in stone. But the White Sox on the on the first cut of that list were not in the bottom 10 uh, in the organizational rankings, which over I mean, over the last few years, they have been at the very bottom or maybe bottom two or three. Um, so how primarily have they made that jump? I think part of it has been um, just their recent drafts. Um, guys like Tim Anderson and Tyler Dennis that they've brought in. A few of their position players now look like they could become useful um, big leaguers. Marcus Semien arrived last year and looks not like he's going to be a future star, but he has some um, on-base ability. Um, but still, when you look at the Sox system, there's there's very few guys that, you know, when you compare them to the Twins, there's there's no Byron Buxton. There's no Miguel Sano. I think it's just a matter of, of, of drafting better. They've also paid more attention and invested more money in Latin America. Um, I would imagine that our prospect guys are probably still really high on Micker Zapata, the, um, the Dominican signee from last summer. Um, so the organization is definitely paying a lot more attention to developing from within. You know, after they won the series in, in 2005, the, the Sox, and, and the Sox are really fun to watch. I, I mean, I think they're probably my favorite organization in baseball to watch, the way that they go about trying to continually make their major league team um, successful. If, if you're a fan of a team, Really, if you're just a, a fan in the stands, that's what you want from an organization. You want them out there all the time trying to make the, the product in front of you, you know, fun to watch and, uh, you know, competitive. And they've done all kinds of clever things. They've gone out and, and signed guys that, you know, people, other people shied away from, like uh, Jake Peavy because of his injuries or, or sticking a waiver claim on Alex Rios and his huge contract. So they've done a lot of things to try and keep themselves competitive. Um, at the major league level, but in doing that, the, the farm system really got hollowed out. And Rick Hahn, I think, has started to address that. They've started to realize that that model works when it's something that you're doing on top of building a solid farm system, on top of developing low-cost, uh, cost-controlled talent from within. And it, it, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say that when Kenny Williams was in charge, not that he isn't still in charge to some extent, that they they didn't realize that. I just think it's become more of a priority for them. Um, Rick Hahn keeps talking about retooling rather than rebuilding, but he's constantly saying we need to make sure that we're bringing in young players and drafting well and building from within. Mm -hmm. So Ken, I'm what you just said um, uh, about you know how well what you just said what you were just talking about. You know mm -hmm. what you just said. <laughs> uh, it, so it reminds me of this joke. That the that this comedian John Mulaney has, where he like does something really horrible and awful on the road, and and all these cars are driving past him, and they're like sort of craning over to look at him, and and I'm gonna quote him, 
Uh, he says, the best about that was after the cars were pulling up and looking over to see who just did this move, expecting to see like a hundred-year-old blind dog who is texting while driving and drinking a smoothie, and they're sad that they see a 28-year-old healthy man trying his <laughs> best. And uh, so with the White Sox, uh, last year they ended the season with, I believe, one player uh, on their entire team of any number of plate appearances, one plate appearance on up with an above average OPS. Uh, 29 hitters, or 20, yeah, 24 hitters, one of them with an above average OPS plus. Um, so uh, were they trying their best last year? And, and if, if so, if, if we look into their, you know, into their car and we see that they're just trying really hard and still can only manage that, does it kind of say something really horrible? Or was last year an exception and, and they really were more realistic about where they stood in the competitive window? Um, I, I, I don't know. It, 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 I, I don't want to say that they weren't trying, but it, it would have been easy to watch White Sox baseball last year and assume that they weren't trying. Um, they, they just made so many blunders. And I, I guess if there's one positive about all that, it's that I think those things are cyclical. I don't, I don't think that uh, Alejandro Diaz is just genetically someone who doesn't know how to run the bases and, and is lost in center field and, and makes millionaires. I just think that that was just sort of something that happened to happen to him last year. Um, the, but from an organizational standpoint, they've been sort of pushing this envelope as far as they could. You know, I mean, in 2012, they were in first place for a significant part of the season um, until the, the Tigers ran them down down the stretch. And last year, they had pretty much the same cast of characters, but they were a year older. Um, John Danks had been hurt. Um, just everything that could go wrong did go wrong. But the White Sox, to their credit, for once at, at the trade deadline didn't they they realized no we're really awful right now we're a really really bad organization especially um you know in, in the lineup we're just not scoring runs and we're in this hitter's ballpark so for the first time in a long time they started they became sellers they went and they realized that they needed to bring in younger players um better players and one thing that i've talked about a few times with people is that it was almost as important for them not to get better so much as it was to seem to get better. I mean, fans were just so frustrated with watching what was going on with the White Sox last year that a player like Adam Eaton, who they brought in, who I think will help them on the field if he's healthy, you know, he can be a spark plug at the top of the order and play a solid center field. But it, it was telling the day that uh, they traded for him, about five hours before the trade date came down, Kenny Williams was on MLB Network, and he was talking about how the Sox were going to you know that they were going you're going to hear soon about how they're going to bring in an, an exciting player someone that their fans can get behind and you know someone on on the panel said mentioned something about him making an exciting move and, or or making a big move and Kenny Williams said did i say big it's not big it's exciting you know the idea was to <laughs> that these guys that they're bringing in it's sort of the sheen of their youth and their newness the fact that it's not that same cast of characters that people just got nauseated watching last year that it's their first attempt to try and mend fences with with uh, the casual fan and try to get them back in their corner so the one player who who probably does clear the exciting bar would be Jose Breu and you 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 kind of made the case in your essay that you know, while people talk about him as a high risk, high reward guy, the risk really isn't that high relative to what the White Sox would have otherwise. That that given the the total dearth of position players, uh, they just needed someone, and if he's okay, that's not so bad for them. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it, the, a lot's made of the fact that this was the the largest uh, single-player contract that, that the White Sox have ever signed in the history of the franchise, and that's true. But in the pantheon of signings, uh, with all the money flowing into baseball over the last year, it's really not that long. It's really not that much money. When you look at the other options that were available at first base, I mean, you could... Paul Konerko was coming back mostly so that he could be carried off on his shield. He he wanted he wanted to leave in much happier circumstances. You probably didn't want him playing first base all year, um, and and then he's gone after next year anyway. You know you have options of guys like Kendris Morales. Is that really less of a risk? I, I mean, it, there's there's a lot to be said for that signing, and it is sort of it is a wild card. I mean, I'm really intrigued. I want to see what this guy looks like. Um, and, and I think that even if he goes out and puts up sort of middle of the road first base numbers, that it, it was a good signing, both both on the field to help the team, but also to to spark interest in the franchise. So he and Eaton and Garcia will all be new uh, to the lineup. Um, Dunn, Beckham, uh, Ramirez, Viciedo, Gillespie, all returning from last year's team. Uh, of the five that I just named, uh, do you expect ma- uh, many, all, any of them to end the season with Chicago, or are they going to be aggressive sellers, and do those guys have value as trade bait? Um, I think a lot of that's going to depend on how their season goes. If they, because uh, the White Sox, if they think that they have a chance, and I, I, I'm not saying they are, they will. But if it's July and they're six games back, um, depending on what the market looks like, they they may not send any of those guys out. But um, I, I, as far as who has some trade value, I'm, it's hard for me to picture someone really wanting this version of of Adam Dunn. Um, probably the guy that would have the most would be Alexei Ramirez. Because um, he still plays a really, really solid shortstop. Um, he makes errors, but he's got tremendous range. He's got some power. Um, he's signed to a reasonable contract through the end of 2015. Um, he's probably the one guy that could bring something back. They don't really have someone set to play shortstop behind him that I would say they would feel really, really good about. They traded. They got uh, Lurie Garcia last year in in the Rios trade and he would be a tremendous defensive shortstop but you know I, I, there's a lot of open questions about his bat I think Marcus Semien it works better at second base I've actually heard folks in, in in the Chicago market talking about the idea of Beckham moving back to shortstop if Ramirez is is traded it's hard for me to picture that being being the best choice but um, another guy that I think might have some some trade value is Alejandro Diaza depending on what they do with uh, Dan Viciedo. I mean, he's going to be an interesting case to watch this year. He's just awful out in left field, but the first base and DH positions already have three players for those two spots. If the Sox really view him as a long-term cog, do they really want to platoon him, uh, you know, make him the short end of a platoon at at left field with, with Diazza, or do they run him out there every day and just hope that he finds a way to make better contact and become a better hitter. Um, I think we'll find out a lot about how, how the Sox view the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Vicieta's future based on, on what they do with him um, early in the season, whether he's going to be getting full-time uh, plate appearances or are they going to platoon him to minimize his damage out in left field? Are you still holding out hope for Tyler Flowers? Um, me personally, no. Uh, <laughs> the organization is mm-hmm. clearly um, they, they didn't address the catcher situation um, in the offseason. They um, selected uh, Adrian Nieto in the um, Rule 5 draft, 
and he's never played above a ball, I don't think. So it's hard for me to picture him being the the solution at catcher for them this year. Flowers um, this week, I think, sort of came out as a, in a in a mini Starlin Castro mode, saying that he's going to be a lot better this year because he's done listening to people telling him how to how to swing that they were messing with his swing all last year and he had the shoulder problems and he's going to go out there and show everyone if you just leave Tyler Flowers alone what kind of numbers he can put up so bully for him I, I hope he does it I'm just uh, I'm, I'm skeptical and uh the last thing I wanted to ask about is the whether the the bullpen will allow a fly ball at some point <laughs> this season I wrote I wrote about uh, when the White Sox signed Scott Downs I wrote about how every single guy in their bullpen is just a super high ground ball rate guy. And then since then, they've signed Mitchell Boggs, who's another one of those guys. It's just guy after guy after guy, just over 50% ground ball rate. Yeah, yeah, I, I read that, Ben. And I, I saw, I thought the same thing when they signed Boggs. It's it's kind of, it's obviously a smart strategy for them playing in the U.S. Cellular Field, which allows a lot of home runs. Um, it's, it's That's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And that, to a certain extent, makes you wonder about um, if they were to trade Ramirez, who is really a vacuum over at shortstop, despite the high error rate, if they were to move him, if they want to be able to turn those ground balls into outs, maybe the guy that they would want to play over there is Larry Garcia because he is so good with the glove. Um, but yeah, it's I, I can't think that that's just a coincidence. That's got to be something that they've looked at um, internally and said, no, this is the way that we have to go with our with our bullpen and with pitching in general is just try to make sure that we get a whole bunch of ground pounders in the in the bullpen. Okay, uh, you know the drill. Uh, prediction time. Okay, so um, what I've done is essentially look at uh, last year to this year, and it, the White Sox are always hard because, as we know, you know, you get the Dakota projections at the beginning of the season, and that's based on current playing time projections for the players that we have. But the White Sox, if they feel that they're in it in in July, will try to add somebody. If they feel that they're out of it in July, they're, they, they might start shipping guys out. So I'm thinking they're going to be in the latter um, camp. Pakota has them at 70, with 76 wins. I think they're not going to quite get there. Mm-hmm. I have them at 74 and 87 with an August 20th rainout with the Orioles that doesn't get <laughs> made up. <laughs> Very Came good. prepared. Came prepared yes. tonight, and I like that. Oh, that's <laughs> yes, right. Did. Uh, make make some people mad. How uh, is this team behind the Cubs, and if so, by how far? Um, well, I think I have them ahead of the Cubs in the standings this year. But um, in there, when you just look at the farm systems, um, uh, even I, uh, as a Cubs fan who has cynicism pretty much drilled into me for for a whole lifetime of rooting for that club. Even I'm optimistic about the Cubs' future to a certain extent, and uh, the Sox have a long way to go to be able to match the, the the Cubs' ability to to envision a championship franchise. Looking at the White Sox today, I don't see the outlines of a team that I think can compete with the Tigers in the division, let alone think about a championship. So they're on the right track. I think what Rick Hahn has done has been very impressive. Um, it's, it's good to see, and I think that the White Sox will be better. But, yeah, there was a reason that they were ranked so lowly on the ESPN list of franchises going forward. Um, it's going to take a little bit of time. All right. Uh, thank you again, Ken. Thank you. Everyone, please go sign up for the play index at baseballreference.com using the coupon code BP so that Sean Foreman will know the awesome influence that we wield. Uh, Coming up next is Nick talking to Dan Hayes, White Sox insider for CSNChicago.com.
Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm speaking with Dan Hayes of CSN Chicago. Dan, the Sox opened camp on Saturday. Have you joined them in Glendale? Yeah, I, I got out here on Friday morning and uh, tried, tried to get away from the uh, 10, 12-degree weather we've been having in Chicago all winter, so it was a uh, welcome change. So the White Sox had their struggles last season on offense, especially their catchers. They combined for a 237 on on-base percentage, which was the second worst in all of baseball. Tyler Flowers had come into the season as the starting catcher. He showed that he has at least some power, but struck out a lot while not walking as much as he did in the minors. Is he the top guy going into 2014, or does Josh Fegley have a chance to play a bit more than a normal backup catcher? Well, you know, Fegley, Fegley got to take over there in July, and and while well, he had a, a good first week or so, you know, he neither guy separated themselves from the other. Um, both of them, the White Sox officials said it all winter that, you know, they were, they were looking outside to, to see if they could find a remedy for a long-term solution um, at catcher because they weren't pleased with the production they, they had, but they, they couldn't find, I, you know, I think, if they could have got Brian McCann, uh, um, that would have been a possibility. But that money was uh, pretty outrageous, um, mm-hmm. and so that that knocked them out of that. And I, you know, now they're going in, and and I think it's really whoever plays better in spring training could get the first crack. Both guys have a pretty good shot. Um, also, Adrian Yeto, a Rule Five pick from the uh, Washington Nationals, has a legitimate shot at the roster right now. The White Sox are looking for anything and everything. To, to find their their starting catcher, and I mean, you you said it with the on base, their uh, their five sixty OPS combined was twenty ninth of thirty, and yeah. they need more production offensively for sure. They're, they had some similar struggles getting production from their third baseman. As Connor Gillespie was Connor Gillespie was slightly more productive than Jeff Kepinger, but still well below average at the plate. They traded reliever Addison Reed to the Diamondbacks in December, acquiring 22-year-old Matt Davidson in exchange. Davidson looked pretty good in just 87 plate appearances in his major de- major league debut last season. Uh, similar to Flowers, he had has flashed some power and patience in the minors, but strikes out a lot. What are their expectations for Davidson in 2014? Well, I think right now, because Kepinger has a contract, because Gillespie is, is out of options, Unless somebody was to make a trade, if the White Sox were to somehow trade maybe Kepinger or Gordon Beckham, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Davidson started in the minors. I, I just think that they're long defensively after a little work, um, but but they want to clean up some rough edges there. Also, they want to get experience. It's not like you know he's 22 or I think he maybe he just turned 23. He's a young guy. He's got plenty of time, and and because those other guys are there. I think that even if he has a breakout spring, that most likely he starts in the minors just so they can they play him every day. But I do think that they believe they'll they'll see him at some point in 2014, and they think once he's there, he's going to be a, a potential power guy in the middle of that lineup for years to come. Do you think Kepinger or Gillespie will start the year in the starting spot? Yeah, I, I, I expect a platoon situation. Mm-hmm. Um, they really like... You, Gillespie, they really like the Robin Ventura. Really likes the the short stroke. That his his swing is easily uh, manageable. And if you look at his uh, batting average on balls in play, you know he was getting robbed like crazy at the start of the year. He he hit the ball harder than probably most guys on that team. And 
it always seemed to find a glove. And, and as the year went along and he made adjustments, he, that, that number got better. Um, but I, I honestly think he could have been a 265 guy last year easily. And, you know, he has a little bit of pop, um, might be like the 15, 17 home run guy. And I think that they think that can kind of balance Kepinger. And I, you know, I, I think they see Kepinger as somebody along the lines of the 280 guy that they signed. He had a first six weeks that were just awful. And then, you know, he kind of stuck with his career norms after that. Um, I think they expect that he'll get back to what he normally is, but at the same time, he could be traded. Chicago was involved in another trade with Arizona just before the Davidson trade, uh, sending Hector Santiago and Brandon Jacobs to the Angels while receiving Adam Eden from the Diamondbacks. Eden will join an outfield that includes Alejandro de Aza, who made the majority of starts in center last year, and right fielder Avisail Garcia, who was acquired in the Jake Peavy trade, and has some potential but chases a lot of pitches outside of the zone. What did the White Sox see in Eden that led them to acquire him and throw him into their mix of outfielders? Uh, you know, they one thing that they were missing last year for sure was a spark plug in the clubhouse. You know, A.J. Pruszynski, for everything that he uh, has been called out for over the years, you know, when, when he's on your team, he, he really gave them some energy, some personality in that clubhouse, and that was gone last year. And I think they think Adam Eaton... I mean, they, they see a guy that is going to bother pitchers, take a lot of pitches, um, can get on base, just as long as that on-base percentage translates from the minors to the majors. And obviously that's a, that's a big leap. But, I mean, they, they think they see that kind of guy there, a guy that gets on base and always pitchers and, and really just has the energy and, and um, personality that, that's needed in the clubhouse for a 162-game season. And so I think, you know, I mean, that's what that's what they're looking for out of him, and if, if he can be like a three thirty on base guy, they're going to be very happy with what they got. He's got some value on the base paths, especially um, advancing advancing from first to third and, and scoring from second. Uh, do you think he can get on base enough to really get get a lot of value out of his base running? Yeah, that that is the question. I mean, I think in the minors he had, I you know I, I can't remember if it was four hundred or four fifty on base. I mean, he, he's a He's a steady guy that he got on base all the time in the minors, and that that's a very big leap. I mean, you know, he didn't show very much of it last year, but I also was told by scouts that he came back from his elbow injury a little early, and it didn't just affect him in the field, but it affected him at the plate too. Um, he's moving into a, you know, he was in a hitter-friendly park last year. He's going to stay in a hitter-friendly park. Um, and, and the good thing is, is this team is kind of under the radar. This isn't, the White Sox have a lot of young guys, so, there are low expectations coming off of a 99-loss season, and I think that's a good thing for him, for Jose Abreu, for everybody that's a young guy on that team. Do you expect to see him in center and DeAsa in left? You know, Eaton is definitely the center fielder. I mean, I, I would say, without it having been completely handed to him, it's his job to lose right now. Uh, DeAsa will split with, with Viciato and left, unless they were to trade one of those two. Um you know, and Diaz definitely plays. I, I think he's he's better suited for left field. His defense, I think, was a little bit below average on uh, UZR in center, yeah. and and you put him in left, and those numbers went up. So, I mean, I, I think that I think that's a better fit for Diaz. I you know I don't know how a platoon is going to work because I think both those guys are are third outfielders and probably need to play every day. 
So it wouldn't surprise me if they made the trade there. And and with as right-handed as their lineup is, it seems to me to make more sense to to keep Diaza. But at the same time, I I don't know that they want to give up the potential that the Seattle has. The White Sox made a bunch of headlines this winter when they outbid everyone to sign Cuban defector Jose Abreu to a six-year, $68 million deal. The Sox now have three power hitters in Abreu, Adam Dunn, and Paul Konerko that can really only play first base and DH. How do the Sox plan on distributing playing time between those three guys? Yeah, that could be tricky. There's there's no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, Paul Konerko used to be an everyday guy, and his body really, he, he said, really caught up with him last year. Um, I mean, he's been playing professionally. I think he's close to 2,800 games, including the minor leagues. So, you know, he's, he's, he's going to be 38 this year. And um, last year, the wear and tear caught up with him. So he said, I'm not coming back as a full-time player. I would not have come back as a full-time player. I think he's probably going to be a guy that gets about 200 bats. And you're going to see him and Adam Dunn split. Uh, one of the two positions, and then Abreu is is pretty much slotted to be their everyday starter. I don't know if that's first base or DH. It sounds like it's going to be first base this year, um, but going forward, they're gonna you know they expect some growing pains because he's got to adjust to life in the majors. He's got to adjust to a completely new culture in the United States from Cuba. But but he's their guy, and Adam Dunn should see the bulk of uh, the other bats with you know the way they've described it is Canerco would bat against select left-handed pitching. So I don't think that means he's going to be a lot of, uh, there's going to be a lot of playing time for him. He'll be the, the first bat off the bench probably and, and getting some starts here and there. Chicago had some struggles in the field last year. Dunn got a bunch of playing time at first base. He's always a guy who you want to avoid putting in the field. Lexi Ramirez was their only real standout defensive player. Is there anyone who you think could make a difference defensively in 2014, either someone who didn't play much last year, a new acquisition, or someone who could improve significantly? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's funny because Ramirez had an awful year, too. I mean, Ramirez had, I think, a career high in errors last year. and mm-hmm. He made he made a bunch of spectacular plays, and then the routine ones, he, uh, he killed them. I mean, he, I think he had 23 errors, and, you know, the... He should be back more. He had been about a 16 error guy for two straight years. Um, I, I, I think he drops a few just because of that and gets back to career norms. Cause it wasn't like he lost a step. He, he really still turned a lot of spectacular plays. So I think he gets a little better. I think Gordon Beckham being healthy will be a big factor. You know, if you look at what he'd done the, the year prior, he was solid. I mean, he's a very good second baseman, has a lot of range. Uh, to his left, and he, he missed 50 games with a broken hammer bone. At the end of the year, he had a sore uh, quadriceps muscle that, that limited him for six weeks, and I think that really hurt him a lot. So you, you take those two, and your, your infield defense should be better. Um, Eaton in center should probably be, uh, I, I would say he's supposed to be somewhere in the, the good to solid range. I don't know that he's a standout defender. I've, I've heard that jumps and routes are not maybe his thing. I, I, I got to see it first. I, I haven't seen enough of it. But you got him, and I think moving Diaz to the left from center upgrades you too. So, I, you know, I don't think that they are where they were two years ago when they led the majors with, uh, I think, they had the fewest errors, and they also had the best fielding percentage in 2012. But it, there's probably somewhere in between where they were in 2012 and 2013, which is, which is solid. And, you know, last year they were horrendous. 
You mentioned Gordon Beckham, second baseman. He made some better contact last year. He still has not been able to live up to that 2009 rookie campaign when he slugged 460. The Sox called up uh, infielder Marcus Simeon in September last year. It was just a few weeks before his 23rd birthday. Will Simeon have the opportunity to, co- to compete with Beckham for the second base job? He played shortstop in the minors and then played mostly third base in Chicago last year. But he's been tried out at second as well. So is Beckham the guy who he's going to try to eclipse? Yeah, you know, Beckham Beckham is a guy going in. I, Semyon showed some really good signs last year. He's got a very good uh, power-speed combo. I think, you know, I mean, he, my projections are 15-15 guy in the majors. And if, if he can do that and hit 280, he's got a good career ahead of him. But this time, I, I think, you know, Beckham, he's going to earn $4 million this year. He is their first overall or their, their first uh, pick from – you know, five years ago. So we're not we're not talking like a guy who's over the hill. He's. It's funny that there's they've talked about this new young core, and Beckham's only going to be 28 this year. So he's he's still a very young guy. And until he had that that quadriceps injury, you know, I think it was August 15th he suffered it in Minnesota. That day, as of that day, he was hitting 310. Um, the power has not been as good as they thought it would be. But he hit 22 doubles last year coming back from a hammock bone injury, which, you know, a lot of people think really saps power from people. So I I could see him getting to be a guy that maybe is a 280-15 homer guy. And, you know, if, if people are – I don't know that he'll ever show the potential or be the guy that everyone thought he was then, but he thinks he's a lot better all-around hitter now. You, you mentioned the reduced strikeout rate. I mean, a couple of years ago, it, it was not fun to watch as the best. And – then in 2012, he started putting the ball in play far more often, but you know his, his balls in play average was terrible. So yeah. last year, there were some really good signs there. He was a lot more consistent. We'll see if he can kind of maintain that this year. Yeah, seeing the his strikeout rate drop while his BABIP went up, that was definitely a good sign for him. So do you think Simeon might get a chance at third base as well? We were talking about uh, the situation there earlier. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's the thing. If we'd been, if we had this conversation on October first, I would have yeah. told you absolutely. Semyon has a shot at the roster. Um, I still think somewhere out, he has an outside shot at the roster. I think he and Davidson kind of fall in that same category. Where if one of them came out and had a bang up spring, there's there's a chance. But at the same time, you know, like you said, he's he's just turning 23. So I think that while he's in their long term plans, I don't know that 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 begins this year because they have some guys ahead of him that make more money that ideally I think that they'd like to see traded. I mean, they if if you can offload Alexi Ramirez or Gordon Beckham and and replace them with Larry Garcia or Micah Johnson or um, Marcus Semien, you know, you're looking at obviously a, a longer term plan, but they really like what they've seen from those young guys. It's just that there's no spot for them right now. So, I, you know, I, I think it's still going to be another active season for the White Sox. They've made four or five trades here. Actually, I think you could go back to July. They've made about six or seven trades, and I still think there's more to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, last March, they signed Chris Sale to an extension that goes through 2017, so they know that they'll have one of the best lefties in the game at the top of their rotation as long as he stays healthy, which, of course, could be an issue. In 2013, Jose Quintana was very useful. He threw 200 innings while improving his strikeout rate and inducing a bunch of pop-ups. Is there room for Quintana to continue to improve and maybe become a legitimate number two? Uh, You know, yeah. I mean, I I think there still is room um, for him to to get better because, 
this is a guy when he when he came to the majors in he came to the big league camp in 2012. He had been waived by the Yankees. The White Sox claimed him, put him on the 40 man, and and he showed up in uh, in big league camp and he basically had one and a half pitches at the time. Uh, he couldn't command the outside part of the plate at all, and that was a that was not gonna farewell. In fact, when when he got tired in 2012 for the end of the season, people just started. To, to take pitches and ran up his pitch counts high quickly, and and he he faded down the stretch in 2012, which you know you'd expect that from a rookie pitcher. And last year, you know he he made a very big uh, a, he worked hard on on commanding the outside part of the plate with his fastball with his with his change in the off season, and he came back and and got a lot more strikeouts because people frankly were they they didn't adjust to him and. You know that that kind of growth was huge. Don Cooper, uh, their pitching coach, loves his makeup, and and he's a guy that learned to pitch inside out, which is another thing in his favor. I mean, there's not a lot of guys that that are, you know, gutsy enough to to start throwing inside and get out inside, and and have to learn how to command the outside part of the plate. So, yeah, there's definitely improvement because he's he's got a full season under his belt now, um, and. There's, they they really like what they see. He's a guy that's always working hard and aiming to get better. He you know even in his personal life he he's been striving to learn English and really is just a guy that that fights for everything. And you know I, I think that there's room for him to go up for sure. John Danks is slotted as their number three starter. Then after that, things are kind of up for grabs between Eric Johnson, Felipe Paulino, Andre Rienzo, and Dylan Axelrod. Axelrod has subpar stuff, and Paulino has had both elbow and shoulder surgery, which leaves Rienzo and Johnson as the more compelling options in the future. What are those two guys going to be working on this spring as they try to break into the rotation? Well, you know, Johnson showed a lot of stuff. You know, I, I thought when he came up last year that he... He really was. Uh, he he had such a good season in the minors, and I didn't know that he was able to back it up in the majors. And he came up and and he had five really good starts um, and against good competition too. I, you know, I know he faced Detroit, I think twice. I know he faced the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, and he he just, you know, the mental game is there with him. So it's getting consistent with him with uh, strike one because he got in trouble by getting behind guys. Um, a little bit, and that's not his game. You know, in the minors, he's he's attacking all the time, and I think that's just an adjustment that that comes with more time in the majors. So that's really it is the mindset and getting him to attack hitters early in the count. Um, you know, Rienzo is a little bit more of a wild card, and I, I I think Paulino is. I mean, they paid Paulino, which makes me think he's their guy at this point. Uh, he threw for the first time yesterday, and he's throwing without restriction right now. Watching what he does over the course of the spring is definitely one of the big keys in camp. But you know, I, I think they expect that at some point he could be able to start for them. And and Don Cooper, you know, Paulino is one of his his projects here to get back on track because you look what he did in 2012 before the elbow surgery. I think he was uh, three and one and had about a 135 or 140 ERA and about seven starts. I don't know that they expect that. That's a uh, pretty good pretty good numbers. But if they can get a guy that's a, a 3-5 ERA pitcher, they're going to be very happy with that for the price they got him at. He had surgery, he had shoulder surgery in September of last year. 
does he plan on being full strength in in the by opening day? You know, I mean, yeah, that's that, that's a big question. That's the same question with John Danks. I mean, mm-hmm. John Danks last year, we saw what happens when you come back from shoulder surgery. He didn't have quite the same velocity. I think he was down somewhere around two to two and a half miles an hour. Um, it, it's it's a big question, but they they said it was arthroscopic and it was not as serious as uh, as believed to be. So, I mean, that's that's why it's one of the big things that we're all kind of looking for is. You know, is Felipe Paulino going to be the guy? Um, they're, one of the reasons they signed him to a, a two-year, or they signed him to a one-year deal with an option, was just in case he's not ready this season, that they get a full season out of him next year if, if they feel like they should go that direction. Um, they, they really believe in that, that he can be a, a guy that's, that's competitive for them, and they love the big arm that he had before and, and are going to work hard to kind of rediscover that with him. The AL Central has three rather distinct tiers at this point, with the Tigers being one of the best teams in the majors, the Indians and Royals being playoff contenders, and then the White Sox and Twins being more in the rebuilding stage. The Twins have some very talented guys in their farm system, including Buxton and Sano. So the White Sox will have to will have their work cut out for them if they want to be competitive in this division within the next few years. They had a very busy offseason, as you mentioned, this winter, so they're definitely aware of that. Do they have the kind of foundation for that jump, or will they need to continue to actively work on their roster, and where will they be looking to improve if they do so? Well, you know, the one thing that I think that they're ahead of, you you look at what Kansas City had to do. Kansas City had the position side taken care of, but they had to go out and trade players to get a James Shields with with Sale and Quintana at the top of their rotation. They have a few guys, and and potentially Eric Johnson as a long-term option, too. Um, The White Sox... The, the thing that they've started to do is, like you said, they they went out and got Abreu, they got Davidson, they got Eaton, um, and they got Avisel Garcia last year. It's four guys who on opening day are going to be 27 or younger, um, and all of whom have less than a year of service time. So you look at that and you think, if these guys come through, they're in good shape. They've also started to spend money on their, their uh, international um, amateur, the international market. They've also started to I think the the signing bonuses, um, having slots and and teams having to stick to them, I think that's helped the White Sox out a lot too. Because last year they they spent exactly what they were supposed to on on the amateur draft. This year they have the number three pick. They have a much higher signing bonus pool to go after guys, and and so they're going to get young talent in, and you can see it. Um, I think that one of the publications knocked them from, um, I, I believe they went from 29th in, in Baseball America up to about 24th, and that was before the Matt Davidson trade. Um, I saw that uh, Jason Parks said the other day uh, that he might mark him as the 19th organization in the farm systems. So, you know, I, it's getting better. It's still not nearly where it needs to be. Just a team that, with, with where they are, I think that if they have a great farm system, and the payroll that they do, they can be a monster down the road. Um, but you need to still build that farm system and build it more and build it more. And and they've got it going that way. So, you know, to say that they're really going to need the four guys that they acquired to, to come through to be competitors in the short term. Um, but I think that there's a good start there. I think Jose Abreu is a guy they believe can be a centerpiece to their offense for the next five or six years. 
And so, you know, that that's always a good start, but obviously they need more bodies. Well, it was great talking to you, Dan. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem, man. I appreciate it. All right, well, have a good spring training. All right, thanks, sir. That was Dan Hayes of CSN Chicago. You can read Dan at csnchicago.com or follow him on Twitter at DanHayesCSN. Tomorrow I'll be speaking with Travis Sawchick, who covers the Pittsburgh Pirates for the Tribune Review. Thanks for listening.